Hello and welcome to Look It, an audio trip down memory lane. Toys, trends, and turntables from the days of then. Tonight's episode is titled Merlin the Electronic Wizard by Parker Brothers. Welcome to the Look It Podcast, where all your dreams come This is the show that takes you back, shows you around, and reminds you of the good old days. Now here's your host, Zerpinigger. It has been a while, and how have you been? I've been busy recording shows, getting myself together here in Connecticut, making music. Time flies when you're having fun. I think the last time I recorded a Look It was in another state. We're going to begin tonight's episode of Look It with a wonderful toy that I never understood at all. Of course, now I do, and I wish I was as smart then as I am now. Of course, that's all in hindsight. But let's go back to Christmas, 1979. I did my usual drop down the obstacle course of my stairway on the way down to the prize of the Christmas toys that were under the tree. And all of this you can hear about in my Christmas episode of Holiday Cheer, number 8, if you're interested. And as I'm looking under the tree at about 3 a.m., I see what looked like a futuristic telephone in a box. And I thought, cool, I get a telephone at nine years old. Woohoo! But I was also a smart and cocky kid, so I thought for sure this was a fake phone with maybe a Disney character in there like Goofy saying, uh-huh. Can I speak to Mickey? Uh-huh. And I wasn't in the mood for that. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Disney for me seemed to die out right around the time that Walt did. Anything after is not a true Disney presentation, but what corporate scum came up with thinking Disney is supposed to be. Now, back to our show. I'm staring at this machine still in the box and thought, well, I'll find out what it is when I wake up in the morning. So I crept back up to the bed and came down again in the morning, acting surprised because I didn't get up in the middle of the night and sneak down the stairs for Christmas. After this message, we'll be right back. Merlin's a game that you can play. You can play it six different ways. Some like to play at tic-tac-toe. Others can test their skill at echo. Some play a tune on Music Machine or try to play Blackjack 13. Merlin is six electronic games in one. It's really fun for most everyone in the family. Six pin light batteries not included. With lights and sounds. Six games in one. Merlin's a game that's lots of fun. Merlin, six electronic games in one. From Parker Brothers. So we opened our presents, and one of my siblings beat me to the phone that I saw during the night. And I saw it opened on the floor, and I picked it up, and I looked at it, and I remember pushing all of the buttons on there and thinking, this is cool, but what the hell is it? I stared at it and stared at it and pushing random buttons and got very confused and handed it off to my sister, who was four years older than me. And she seemed to love it. I mean, she liked it a lot. And once she got the hang of it, she seemed to really enjoy it a bunch. I wanted to know what all the hubbub was about, so when she finished with it, I tried again. Couldn't get it. To this day, I never truly knew much about this thing. I remember my dad using it, I remember my sister enjoying it, and I even think it sat in my brother's possession for many years. It wasn't until very recently, within the past few weeks, that it re-entered my mind via Facebook in a Retroland.com post. 
Merlin the Electronic Wizard first came out in 1978 and was a Parker Brothers game. The game originally was invented by Mr. Bob Doyle, who built Merlin together with his wife and his brother-in-law. Mr. Doyle was born June 19, 1936, and is a Harvard-trained astrophysicist. I do not know many astrophysicists, nor can I say it correctly, number two, but number three, it's not every day you get the chance to talk to an astrophysicist, let alone a very, very sweet person who took the time to talk to me about an invention that he made back in 1978. I was very lucky to have a conversation with Mr. Bob Doyle, not only about Merlin, but about all of the great things that he's done over the past 70 years. And it is my pleasure to share that with you. Welcome to Zerbiniger's interview with the one and only Mr. Bob Doyle. Today I have the honor of talking to Mr. Bob Doyle. This is the gentleman who created Merlin, the the handheld device, the very first, what I thought when I was a kid was a... A cordless telephone. <laughs> That's what it looked like, yeah. <laughs> the first time I ever saw it. And uh, I definitely wanted to ask you a couple questions about it, but first I want to thank you so much for taking the time to... Sure, very happy, Kevin. Nice to talk. What are your questions? Well, my first question would be is, is, is when you started developing Merlin, uh, what, were you, what was going through your mind at the time and what were you trying to achieve? When I got my PhD in astrophysics from Harvard, my wife also got a PhD. And in those days, we had what were called anti-nepotism rules that said university can't hire a relative. So the two of us had to find a way to support ourselves by either splitting up. And some of our friends went to two different universities and their marriages went like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Or one of us should go out and make an independent income. And I said, oh, I can always invent something. So... I basically uh, built a company around the idea of making filmmaking and film editing equipment that could be used by schools. And that company is still in California. It's very big. Uh, It's now doing Super 8 movies for celebrities like Madonna and George Lucas and uh, uh, all these uh, Hollywood guys who love the film medium, the 8mm film medium, believe it or not, with the world of HD television and this gorgeous picture that you see here, they are are still shooting uh, Super 8. So Super 8 Sound became a company, uh, it became a million dollar company, had about 13, 15 employees and I was running it. And there came a time when I realized it wasn't really going to make us an independent income, although it was a nice company. And I loved the whole idea of building communications tools for people, which is my main focus when I'm doing technology. Uh, But I then realized uh, we might take advantage of the fact that I've learned about how to make little transistor-based games, Mm -hmm. transistor-based devices. I invented a thermostat, a programmable thermostat, and I thought, well, probably Honeywell isn't going to buy this from us. They probably think they did it. Uh, And I said, how about games? So I started, Holly and I and a brother-in-law started making prototype games. We built four working prototypes, Mm -hmm. uh, sent a letter to 10 games companies and said we could make you an electronic games company. And same letter to 10 uh, electronics companies or, or games companies. Right. I, could, I could add electronics to games or games to electronics companies. And I said I thought it would be a $100 million a year business. Turns out I was wrong by a factor of 10, Kevin. <laughs> In 1980, it was a billion dollar a year business. And Parker Brothers, who published six of our games, 
uh, had about a 20% share of that business. So we made quite a bit of money as a result of being paid royalties. Uh, I then quickly sort of dropped out of that because it was really just a means for supporting myself right. and my wife. Um, I went on and uh, started another company which lost a lot of the money I had just made. Yeah. It was called IXO, mm -hmm. and it took one of our game-like devices. I'd made a kind of scrap... Um, a game that played uh, word, word letter games mm -hmm. like Hangman on a little keyboard and uh, a 16 character screen. And I realized that could be turned into a, a portable terminal or what we called a telecomputer. So I raised $13 million and we got this company going. Uh, it's 1979, 1980, 81. And we could plug it into a telephone network and pay bills and do airline reservations and all kinds of stuff we do today on the internet. Oh my gosh! But but it really wasn't ready. Uh, none of the services were available. You know, working with a bank uh, that wasn't that wasn't going to happen for another fifteen or twenty years. So that was a big loss. I dropped out of that um, and had a great loss because of that. But then I became a um, programmer. Mm -hmm. uh, I was the eleventh certified developer for Apple Macintosh. Because Steve Jobs was going to buy my little terminal. They were yeah. going to call it the Blueberry at Apple. Right. But it, it really fell through. So uh, I, I wrote a program called Mac Publisher, which is the first desktop publishing program. Yeah. A reason I wrote that was because I wanted to write some books in philosophy and physics. And uh, I, I've wasted 20, 30 more years getting around to that because of being distracted by other technology things through the years. Mm -hmm. um, what were, what were some of the technology things that distracted you while you were writing that? Uh, basically, uh, I got very interested in building uh, film equipment originally for students at Harvard. I've been an advisor to students at Harvard, built them a filmmaking workshop in the 70s. And then in the 80s, I built them a, a television studio, multi-camera television studio and uh, a sound studio. And so I invented some things around the whole idea of uh, multi-camera video projects. I'm still involved in one of those. Uh, it's, That's awesome. You can, you can find it at uh, itv-studio.com. Okay. And what we've done is to put a, a switcher, which is what I always provided, a multi-camera switcher. But now I've got it in a little briefcase, a Pelican case, and it can support six cameras. And so the students take this thing around and they shoot uh, plays and other events and stuff like that. Man. So I've been, I've been stayed in touch with that, and that was a distraction. Uh, I also had a wonderful experience. I've helped to organize a lot of conferences at Harvard. Mm -hmm. One of them was around blogging, called the BloggerCon in 2003. Mm -hmm. And at this blogging conference, uh, I met a guy who wanted to get a career started again in, in radio broadcasting. Uh, and he had had years of experience in public radio. Right. And we all decided he should have a blog with sound on it. In those days, Harvard had blogs set up, and you just posted text, right? right. Right. So Dave Weiner, who is the guy who really did a lot of the technology behind blogging, he was a research fellow here. And he said, OK, I will make the envelope to attach media to a blog post. And so Dave Weiner and this fellow Chris Lydon, who was big on the connection of program on public radio for years, 
they made a little uh, MP3 file and we attached it to a blog. And it turns out that was the first podcast. Now, you're a podcast guy, <laughs> but my lab right here is where we made the very first podcast, like true two trillion podcasts ago in 2003. Yeah, there's there's over, what, 2.5 billion podcasts out there right now. Oh, yeah, whatever. It's Do just... you ever get any uh, residuals from that? <laughs> yeah. all, you deserve them. Thank you for that, by the way. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, I know. We all use it. I love to make tools for people so yeah. I can be seduced away from... You know, the philosophy work is kind of dry. It's just me sitting at a computer and using a desktop publishing program to produce a book. So back when I wrote the first publishing program, I thought, I'm going to write my book. I'm going to use this. But today I use Adobe uh, InDesign, it's called, which is the latest, greatest uh, program that allows you to lay out pages. So here's a copy of my book. And the one, the first one that's out is on the subject of free will. It's called The Scandal in Philosophy. And this one is an annotated version where I'm, I'm making changes for the next edition. Oh, wow. Uh, but, but the whole book is laid out by me, designed by me. And here's my second book, and it's just kind of in work now, in a draft. And so instead of one problem like free will, now it has problems called mind-body. How does the mind make the body move if the mind is what's called immaterial? How can it push the body? And other problems in philosophy. So if you look closely at my design, I always like to mark up my textbooks with chapter sections. Easy to find where you it are. It makes them easy to find. So every chapter has got a kind of a laid out graphic of showing all the different uh, problems that are, that are in the book. And uh, I design the whole thing, the cover and everything. And I take it, I output a PDF file. Right. I take it down to Harvard Square. And down there we have a book machine. They take the PDF and they hand me back for $15 a beautifully perfect bound book. What? Just, just like I could put it on the, uh, the book stands and sell it right now. I thought for sure that was done up by some, some major printing company. No, nope. <laughs> it's just a one-off. And now eventually the other book, I had it sent to a company that does binding and printing right. and several only sold several hundred copies it's not a big deal because it's a very narrow subject yeah. but it's the subject that i really it's the thing i do with my cosmology interests and my philosophy interests that's and that's what uh, there's that's one thing that i think you could definitely say is that you spent your entire life improving the life of everybody else <laughs> well i like to add tools to people's hands but one of the most important tools is what i can add to people's minds exactly it, to help them think about problems, very relatively deep problems. You know. Well, one thing I said in in this particular episode, which is the Merlin episode for for Look It, was that uh, when I first saw it, I was nine years old uh, in, mm -hmm. in nineteen seventy eight, and and I looked at it and I couldn't figure out what to do at nine. I didn't bother reading any directions or anything. Right. My, my sister, who's four years older than me, took it, knew what to do, and was just loving it. Um, mm -hmm. It, it, it was amazing to me that uh, she was digging it so much, and I picked it up again, and I was like, what? And I'm sitting here, what do you do? What? How in the world are you? <laughs> she was making music. She was playing tic-tac-toe. She was doing the mind-bender game and everything else, yeah. and I couldn't, 
I couldn't get it. And, uh, <laughs> and now, at my age now, I'm dying to find a Merlin. And you sent me actually an emulator online. Thank you very much. Yeah. So I can yeah. actually play it now. You can play it right away. But you know, they're still available, Kevin, today for exactly the same price they sold in 1978. Oh my eBay God. has usually got a half a dozen Merlins for 25 or $30. Yeah. Exactly. And they're in good, good shape. I mean, we, we built five and a half million of them. Well, that's the so, question. So, the, the other question I had is, how did it feel after having that done? It's selling five million games within, you know, at least a year of, of having it built, especially in 1978. Yeah, they lasted on the market only a few years. Right. Uh, Parker Brothers wasn't as good as uh, Milton Bradley, who kept the Simon game going for a lot longer. Yeah. Um, and uh, but but it was five and a half million. Actually, the peak year was 1980, 2.2 million in that year alone. Uh, but coming back to Merlin, you know, it was just not just me, but my wife, Holly. Right. She wrote the code for five of the programs. She's wow. a programmer like me. And I was always the debugger. And her brother wrote one game, the um, the Blackjack game. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Blackjack 13. So uh, it was a cooperative effort. We uh, bought some very fancy machines, uh, Intel uh, development uh, machines that allowed you to do code development. Right. $25,000 for a, what's called an in-circuit emulator that allowed us to program and get working prototypes very quickly. Yeah. We actually built 25 different game prototypes for Parker Brothers, oh who only, only published six of them. <laughs> but they paid mostly for the development. One game alone was called Parker Playoffs. Yeah. My brother-in-law really loved this one. He was the lead programmer with me. It was an LCD display, and it had an array of little things that looked like stars. With There were soft-sided, uh, soft-edged five, um, what should I say, five-point things, right. softened. And then what they did was we in the middle we had a dot which we could make black or white. And so it was like skins against shirts. Okay. And the two teams were playing LCD, and we had a football game, a baseball game with base running and stealing. Oh, we wow. had a hockey game and a soccer game. Oh, and, wow. and Parker Brothers spent a quarter of a million dollars in program development and game development and then never published it. Oh. You think it's just sitting somewhere now and not being... In, in, in my cellar. Okay, good. As long as it's somewhere. <laughs> right. Man. Um, and and uh, one thing I would like to add is uh, I'm, a, I'm a musician as well. I write some music. Um, and the earliest piece of equipment I have is this right here, which you might recognize. Oh, absolutely. Little, uh, Radio Shack or Casio? Casio? Who was that? The Casio, Casio Tone yeah. um, VL series. And it's not working now because my granddaughter was playing on it and I can't get it to work correctly. But this, I thought, was the first synthesizer. But if you really think about it, the first synthesizer would have been the Merlin because you could program it to uh, play, record and play music. That's right. Actually, there were the fellow named Moog, right? The Moog synthesizer was out a few years before Merlin. And it was expensive, but you could actually do the same thing. We definitely had it in mind. Um, uh, I had to work hard to make the notes of a regular chromatic musical scale. Right. It wasn't easy to do with a little chip. Uh, we also, one of our next games was called Stop Thief, in which we had little sound effects like burglar alarms going off and 
glass breaking and footsteps, and I emulated all those sounds uh, by by working out little, you know, one bit at a time or multiple bits, and then having them come out and sound like something. We had a lot of fun with just making a little com- a microcomputer do. Yeah you know, sort of fun things. Well, but we also, uh, when you played Merlin, you remember the game called Magic Square in which you have to get an eight, all the eight around the outside lit up? Yeah, yours was a three by three grid version? It was three by three, and we basically had to light up the outer eight and the light in the middle off. It turns out my wife uh, did that one based on a very complicated game which actually taught young kids, even nine-year-olds, what's called group theory or set theory, group theory, really, a high-level mathematical system. And the American Mathematical Association wrote a paper about Merlin, which said Merlin is teaching 10-year-olds group theoretic concepts that they normally wouldn't meet unless they went to graduate school. (laughs) And we said, yeah, Holly, that's what we like to do, make kids stronger. (laughs) Definitely. Giving the gift of that knowledge to somebody else, of course, felt good. Do you think also that you helped uh, other things come along, like Texas Instruments Professor, the mathematic tool that came out later, toys like that? Did you have anything to do with any of those toys? Not not directly, but always supported the idea, right? Always thinking of my own ideas. Right now, the most radical idea in my head with you is it's not a game at all, Mm -hmm. but it's the idea that in the next five years' time, most of the people, and that will include young kids on the planet, will have a smartphone. Yeah. Because the smartphone costs right now like 40 bucks for Indian made. Yeah. And this company out of China called Xiaomi, that uh, uh, they've sold a half a billion phones last year. And they're going to be one of the world leaders in providing very low-cost phones. That means that young children could be exposed to ideas. Well, start with Merlin, maybe. I actually wrote an iPhone version of Merlin, but I've been too busy ever to try to put it out. Oh, put it out! (laughs) Well, I'm I'm too busy. I'm on to another whole thing. But you're absolutely right. We could probably sell 10, 20, 50,000 99-cent Merlins. Oh, man. Uh, But uh, I haven't done that. But I seriously think that some of the ideas I work on in my philosophy could become things that who knows where, anyone in the world could learn them. Yeah. And now already MIT classes and other things where they could study things and become much more productive young people. But I have really radical ideas that there are things that people should know about philosophy, about, uh, and, and I could put them into a form that could come out of what, five, six billion phones in a few years and have another influence like putting Merlin in your hands. Exactly. And your sister's hands. Exactly, exactly. Thinking what would it be? What little thing would you read that would possibly change your life uh, in in Africa and Asia and anywhere in the world, right? That's, That's amazing. No, that's just amazing. And it's so great to be in a time where you can actually pull that off easily without having to take a flight here, take a flight there, and, and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. We don't have to travel anymore to spread ideas around the world. Not at all. I call myself an information philosopher. Yeah. That's, that's my website. And so what I'm saying is there is a lot of information, and it's easy now to put into other people's hands. Exactly. And information is even more powerful way of handling some problems than just talking about them with words because words are kind of ambiguous and slippery and you may not understand my words 
But the information that's in something, uh, whether it's an object in the world uh, or, or a mechanism or a machine, once it's in your head, it's, it's the same, there's what's called a mapping between the information in your head and the object in the world. Yeah. Basically, this is how we know things. We know them because we've abstracted information about if something, even like a cat, we know what a cat is, and you have the information of what more or less it means to be a living being like a cat, and uh, yeah. it's in your mind. So that's what education is all about, is getting things into people's minds. So we will be able to do that in ways that are quite unbelievable and maybe change the way the world people deal with one another in the future. I mean, nation states and religions and all sorts of things that more or less put people in silos. So they kind of, you know, it's you against them and all of that. Maybe that could change, Kevin, because we're going to be able to reach everybody I mean, I reached 5 million people with Merlin, but we can reach 5 billion people in the next few years if we could figure out what it is we want to say to them. That's completely and utterly the truth. It's just so amazing that that possibility is there. And especially being able to start with just that little kindling, that little tiny spark that sets off exactly what needs to be told and said between we know we have to figure that out right now so look at my informationphilosopher.com website sometime you'll see the work i've been doing for the last 10 years i appreciate your time so very much you don't even know especially at such short notice uh, very very well, no problem i as i say i'm interrupt driven i'm going to go back to working on another chapter in my book <laughs> thanks thank for asking me thank you for your time sir and i look forward to talking to you again thank you hey thank you kevin bye-bye bye-bye Merlin was the highest LED game on the market, selling well over 5 million games during its initial run. Not bad in 1978, and it stayed strong through the 80s, too. Merlin was in the shape of what we now call a vintage bush-button telephone. This was a red rectangular about 8 inches long and 3 inches wide, and it had 11 circular buttons numbered 0 through 10. It had a 4-square button grid at the bottom, the square buttons were marked New Game, Save Game, Hit Me, and Comp Turn, which of course meant Computer's Turn. The Merlin game had six games that you could play. Some were playable with another person, and some were dedicated to being played against Merlin himself. The games were Tic-Tac-Toe, which was a simple version of the average X and O games of our youth. Number two was Music Machine, in which Merlin functioned as a musical instrument where the keys were assigned a music note, and sequences of notes could be recorded and played back. This made Merlin one of the earliest digital sequencers as well as an early electronic synthesizer next to the Casio Tone from 1979. Number three would have been Echo, which is a game similar to Simon in which you follow patterns that Merlin plays. And number four was Blackjack 13, in which you could play a card game with Merlin. Number five was Magic Square, which was a pattern game similar to Lights Out, in which a player must switch all of the lights off in as few button presses as possible, using a 3 by 3 grid. And number six was Mindbender, a game similar to Mastermind, in where I go absolutely crazy trying to figure that puppy out. Maybe this is one of the reasons I put Merlin down. Around Christmas in 1978, Merlin and Simon were on the Christmas issue of Newsweek, labeled as Turned on Toys with a Robotic Santa Claus. 
And in 1980, the toy manufacturers of America named Merlin the best-selling toy and game in America. In 1995, a redesigned version of Merlin was introduced by Parker Brothers called Merlin the Tenth Quest. This device looked exactly like a Nokia cell phone from the year 2000. Merlin the Tenth Quest came with a little screen at the top. And instead of six games, it came with nine games. First one being Swords and Shields, which is just like Tic-Tac-Toe. Number two was Seek the Grail, which is a game like shells where you put something under a shell and you move them around on a table and try to figure out where the object went. Number three was Castle Keep, a game where you guess the number between 0 and 99. Number four was called Spellbinder, which is a game like Memory. Number five was Mindcaster, played again like Mastermind. And number six was Magic Square, played like the Lights Out game from the previous system. Number seven was Singing Sword, where you have to push the buttons to make the swords on the screen disappear, and pushing the wrong button would make a sword appear. Number eight was Ghost Walk, where you would use directional pads to move ghosts towards the center of the screen to destroy it. Number nine was Dragon Dance, where you were surrounded in all directions by dragons, and if a dragon appears, you kill it by pressing the directional pad where the dragon is located. After you completed all nine games, Merlin would announce, Brave Knight, the challenge awaits. Then you would play the tenth quest. It was a dungeon maze in which you must complete by running through to the exit. In the second round, the walls vanished temporarily, and in the third level, there was no walls whatsoever, so you had to run blindly through the maze. If you finish the tenth quest, Merlin announces, Congratulations! You are a master! After this message, we'll be right back. I'm Zurbinator. I do a bunch of podcast shows. All consist of things to make you happy. And some are of movies. And some are of retro days of them. And some are of some spookiness Like being back from the dead So I wanna tell you that they can be found online They are totally free They will not cost you a dime Go to servanator.wordpress.com And find everything just fine And on iTunes you can also subscribe Try my best to get the shows out on time Needless to say, I truly wish I spent more time with Merlin as a kid. I was nine years old at the time, and I just could not grasp what it was all about. I think it would have promoted more brain use if I had paid attention to the game's potential. Both my sister and my brother are much better in the mental department. I'm just better looking. I want to thank my special guest tonight, Mr. Bob Doyle, for joining me to explain to you his wonderful invention. It was such a pleasure to talk to him about his accomplishments. You can find Bob Doyle's site, Information Philosopher, Beyond Logic and Language, at www.informationphilosopher.com. And you can find Merlin, the JavaScript emulator, online at theelectronicwizard.com.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Look It. Please join me next time when we access another memory of the days of then. So until then. All Observinator's music and podcasts are under the Creative Commons license, which allows retelling and rebroadcasting as long as the author is notified and credited. For more great escape pods, please visit www.zerbinator.wordpress.com. If you would like to contact Zerbinatorland, you can send an email to instrumentally at gmail.com or give us a call at 571-408-ZERB or 9372.